Uh, can we show our thanks and appreciation to Julie and the worship team as well uh, for leading us fantastically this morning? Uh, I'm very excited about today because uh, today is uh, when we begin thinking theology, uh, which is a new thing we're trying in the life of the church. For those who like to think, uh, but particularly to think theologically around some of the difficult themes of our faith, and it kicks off this evening. Uh, all the details are in your notice sheet. You are encouraged to come along uh, and to join us, an opportunity to have a discussion around a theme. Uh, tonight, we're kicking off with the theme, Did God Really Make the World uh, in Six Days? Uh, of course, there's a very simple answer to the question. No, he actually made the world in seven days. I'm hoping that won't be the conclusion. Uh, but uh, there are no easy answers to this question. And we're going to come together this evening and discuss this uh, and, and uh, uh, explore this theme a bit uh, together this evening. So please do come along uh, if that sounds of interest to you. Uh, for those of you I don't know, let me introduce myself. My name's Chris, Chris Brockway. I have the joy of being involved in the leadership of the, t the church here at CBC. Uh, really great uh, to welcome you with us this morning if you're here for the first time. We've been journeying through the book of Esther in the Old Testament in a teaching series, and today we get to the end of the story, which is the climax of the story. If you've been with us over recent weeks, you'll know that God's chosen people, the Jews, have been threatened by, uh, with extinction by this wicked man called Haman, uh, who's managed to convince his drunken king, Xerxes, to pass an unchangeable law that permitted the genocide of the Jewish nation. In the story, we've heard how by this incredible series of God incidences, this Jewish woman, Esther, rises up to a position where she finds herself queen to the king, and she has incredible influence. And because of her influence, as we discovered last weekend, this great reversal happens in the story. Haman's wicked plan backfires on him, and last weekend we enjoyed listening to the story as Haman was impaled on a spike that he had built uh, ready for Mordecai, uh, who was a good man in the story. And then at the very end of chapter 8, which we didn't really touch on last weekend, the king passes another law, another unchangeable law, which permitted the Jewish people to protect themselves against anyone who would attack them or their property. As we head into chapter 9 of the story today, the day has finally come when this law that the king had passed some nine months before uh, comes, becomes live. This edict becomes live or it becomes active. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that means everything's okay, doesn't it? Surely this means that all the troubles of God's people are going to be over because this law has been passed which is going to protect them. But as we discover, there's still a problem. The problem is that now there's not only one unchangeable law, but there are now two unchangeable laws. One unchangeable law that was previously passed 12 months before that enabled the persecution of the Jews. And then the king passes this other unchangeable law that permitted the Jews to defend themselves against persecution. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Two unchangeable laws. Can you see the problem? Our unwise king has set up the perfect storm in his kingdom. If these two laws were, were rivers, as we head into chapter 9, the two rivers are a meeting. Now, living in Christchurch as we do, we know what happens when two rivers meet. There's a conflux or a confluence. Yeah, you see, I googled it. Two rivers meet, and where two rivers meet, you'll often find turbulent or troubled waters. That's what happens in our story today. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Esther chapter 9. I'm going to read various verses, jump around a bit, keep up with me if you can. Verse 1 says this, On the 13th day of the 12th month, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. 
On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people were all afraid of uh, the, the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, uh, and all the officials, the king's administrators, helped the Jews because, of Morde- because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread, spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Verse 14. Another edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 20, Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far, that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe these days as days of feasting, of joy giving, of presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor, so the Jews continued to, ce- uh, to, to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. And that celebration still continues today in the Jewish faith. So the big picture story from the book of Esther that we've seen so many times already is God says this, look, if you will be my people, then I will be your God. Isn't that the message we've seen over and over? I'll provide for you, I'll protect you, I will stand with you, I'll be with you in all of your battles and your struggles. If you will be my people, then I will be your God. Now, of course, this wasn't a new message for the Jews. God had already made this promise multiple times through the decades, through some of the great heroes of the faith, like Abraham and Joshua and Moses. But this morning, as we conclude our journey through this book of Esther, I want to remind us of two amazing biblical truths that, in a sense, sit underneath that promise that God has made to his people. If you will be my people, then I will be your God. The two truths of this is God always finishes what he begins. And the second truth is that when all is said and done, God wins. Now, before we get onto all that really life-bringing stuff, we need to deal with all the death that happens in our story. You have to admit that chapter 9 particularly is quite a troubling chapter in this book of Esther. You see, the problem you discover, and I skipped over it a little bit, is that chapter 9 is absolutely full of slaughter. And at first glance, it might lead you to conclude that the the Jews just went about because of their newfound power, just brutally killing anyone, any of their enemies who came their way. In fact, what you discover is 100,000 people died in cold blood as a consequence of the edict that was passed. Verse 5 says uh, in chapter 9, they did what they pleased to those who hated them. It doesn't sound good, does it? They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In verse 6, they kill 500 people. Verse 7, they kill 10 people. Verse 15, 300 people die. And in verse 16, 75,000 people die. By the time you get to verse 17 of chapter 9, they had a well-earned rest. 
Last time I killed 100,000 people, I needed a well-earned rest afterwards. And of course, it leaves us with the question, were they abusing their power? Were they exceeding the God-given mandate that they were given to protect themselves and to protect their property as a consequence of this new law that was passed? Well, that's one interpretation of the text. They were exceeding the mandate that God had given to them. There is another way of reading the text, though, and it causes some theologians to conclude that the Jews actually were only defending themselves. They were only doing what they were permitted to do by the law. And the reason some people have concluded that is because there's a repeated refrain, which we didn't uh, touch on only once, in verse 10, verse 15, and verse 16. And the refrain simply says, but they took no plunder. But they took no plunder. Now, they could have taken anything they wanted. Actually, the king's edict back in chapter 8 enabled them to protect themselves, to protect their property, and to take uh, the property of their enemies. What we discover in Scripture, though, is whenever something is repeated over and over again, it's because God is trying to get our attention or trying to say something. And I just wonder, they took no plunder. Is such restraint a sign that they were indeed only defending themselves despite the huge death toll? Well, I haven't got a clue. You can talk about it in your home groups uh, in the week that's ahead. And the reason I don't particularly want to land on an answer about that this morning is, A, because it's very difficult to answer, perhaps impossible, but also because actually it's not the most important thing in the story, even though the slaughter seems to be the headline. There are much more important things for us to focus on. You see, this morning we we witnessed the, the climax of Esther's amazing story where Mordecai gets acknowledged as a man of greatness. Can you imagine for a moment Esther just beaming from ear to ear with satisfaction? Why? Because God has finally had his way. Because God has finally triumphed over evil. Because God has dispelled fear and replaced it with hope. Because Esther was able to play just a small part in God's amazing plan. And what a reversal it was. Previously in the story, the people were facing extinction, and as we read at the end of chapter 8, and then as we head into chapter 9, suddenly no one could stand up against the Jews because of the influence that they had. In fact, the text says people began to become afraid of them. Surely that's God working. With all that's gone before, that must be God working in a miraculous way. As we read on into um, verse 3 of chapter 9, We hear that all the commanders of the provinces, the officials, the princes, the governors, they were actually helping the Jew because of their fear of Mordecai. It's quite an amazing turnaround, isn't it? Surely only God can make this happen. Only God can take these seemingly impossible circumstances and enable a Jew to become more and more powerful, to become the person who's pretty much calling all the shots in a Gentile, non-Jewish government. And it would appear that Mordecai is doing all of this with integrity. He's doing it with a good heart, not serving himself, but serving others. How do we know that? Because it says at the end of the book, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, held in high esteem by his fellow Jews. Why? Because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for their welfare. Aren't they good, refreshing words? He worked for the good of his people and he spoke up. For their welfare. What we have here is not somebody who's self-serving, but what we have is a man of integrity, someone who's servant-hearted. The highest-ranking official in political office in the land is looking out for the needs of others. God always honors integrity. 
always. I wonder if you saw this headline uh, during the week. Boris Johnson resignation. Sajid Javid says, uh, says a prayer meeting moved him to quit. Did you see this? A prayer meeting moved Sajid Javid to quit uh, the cabinet. The article went on to say what resolved him to quit, he told the BBC, was hearing a sermon on integrity at a prayer breakfast in Parliament on Tuesday. Isn't that great? Someone of integrity. God always honours Integrity, well, God isn't going to honour him by being the next prime minister. We know that for sure. He's not in the race uh, anymore if he was ever in it. But God always honours integrity. I wonder how he's going to honour Sajid Javid. In our story, God is doing this amazing work, and he's using ordinary people like Esther to do extraordinary things. And I think to myself, well, if God can establish a Mordecai, a Jewish man, to be the most influential person in a Gentile kingdom, then just maybe the prayers that we prayed earlier, that God would raise up somebody of integrity to lead our government, isn't that big a prayer at all in the economy of God. He can do it because he can do all things. And as we did earlier, we should be praying for those in leadership that they will be people of integrity. But what a joy it must have been for for Esther to realize deep within her soul that God had used humble little her to establish his grand and his glorious plan for his chosen people. And as we get to the end of the story, we could just say, well, that's a nice story, isn't it? From history, it's a happy ending. We all love a happy ending. But we shouldn't miss the mind-blowing fact that Esther's story is our story. As we conclude in Esther, there's no better time than today than to proclaim confidently one of the great themes of Christianity that we often refer only for a sermon in a funeral, and it's the theme of triumphant hope, of triumphant hope. Not hope as some kind of distant, vague dream, but a triumphant, glorious, certain hope, the kind of hope where we know that everything's going to turn out right and that one day God is going to get all of the glory. That's what we can proclaim this morning. You see, biblical hope is the kind of hope that we can have even when we're in the midst of the struggles and the storms of life. Some of us need to hear that this morning. We're in a struggle, we're in a storm. We can know hope, which is a triumphant hope. We can advance our thoughts beyond today. We can get beyond our immediate circumstances and even find strength in our circumstances in the knowledge of knowing that relief is coming. We can find hope in knowing that Triumph is ahead that ultimately God will get the victory and God will get the glory because ultimately God wins. He wins. Listen to these words from Revelation 21, chapter 4, as it describes what our experience of heaven will be like. This is triumphant hope. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I am making everything new, says Jesus. These words are trustworthy and they're true. They are trustworthy and they are true. You see, unlike Esther, Mordecai and the Jews living in Persia 500 years before Christ, you and I have the privilege of having read the final chapter in the book. And do you know what we discover as we read Revelation? We discover that God wins. In fact, you don't even need to read that in Revelation. It's scattered, that promise, throughout this book. Chuck Swindle puts it so well. He says, the book of Esther stands on the history shelves like a condensed version of life itself. Isn't that good? A condensed version of life itself. Though the fate of God's people hung precariously in the balance, in the end, God triumphed over impending tragedy. 
And that's precisely what we discover as we read to the end of the Bible, as we get to the end of the book, we discover that God triumphs. And he does it gloriously and he does it wondrously over what might seem like the tragedy of human history. The tragedy of human history, God triumphs even in the midst of that. In the end, God wins. Whether you like it or not, God wins. Whether you accept it or not, God wins. Whether you come to faith in Christ in in repentance, God wins. Whether you one day bow willingly before Jesus as Lord or Savior, you're forced to do so, God still wins. Had Mordecai and Esther had the opportunity, they probably would have proclaimed similar words to that of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy. He says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now, he says, because of that, there's in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but to everyone and anyone who longed for his appearing. Aren't they amazing words? Right at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul, in effect, is saying, I know that the best is yet to come. God in Christ has not only blessed me with this glorious gospel for this earthly life, but he's given me a promise for life eternal, which is a crown for my faithful service. What a glorious hope is mine, is what Paul is saying. You see, this hope was something that fired the Apostle Paul. It was something that sustained him. It it excited him in this earthly life. Paul is saying this is not just pie in the sky by and by when you die, but you can know today the certain hope of having a permanent home in heaven. You can know and you can experience, albeit in a broken way, and one day we'll feel it it fully, that eternal existence of, or the experience of shalom, the peace that surpasses all understanding, no matter what it is we're confronting today. Think that through for a moment. All of your earthly woes, all of your financial pressures, your emotional trauma, your physical disabilities, all of the domestic conflicts that we get involved in, all international wars that we've rightly prayed about today, all demonic oppression and satanic attack, one day will be gone. Why? Because God wins, that's why. And we get to be with the one who wins the victory and wins the battle. One day we will see him face to face. What a promise. We will be changed. Can I get a hallelujah? We will have new natures. Can I get a praise God? We will one day have new minds. Can I get awesome? Awesome. One day we're going to have a new body. Can you raise your hand and say, I need one of those? Some were more enthusiastic about that thought than others. You see, one day we're going to have the joy of living forever and ever and ever and ever in praise and adoration of our God. And I wonder if that sounds attractive to you. You see, in the end, God comes out on top. His plan prevails. And that's why I love the story of Esther. Not only does it have this amazing plot that keeps us moving and on the edge of the seats, but as we get to the final scene, we discover that everything turns out okay. And remember, Esther is just a shadow of what's to come. Things end well. God wins. Now, that didn't mean the end of their troubles and their hardships for the Jews in this earthly life. They continue to have trouble with their enemies. It didn't mean that they lived happily ever after in a perfect relationship with God in this earthly life. But here's the promise for us to claim, again in the words of the Apostle Paul, being confident of this, the God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. It's a promise. The God who's begun a work in you will one day complete it. And Paul says, I am certain that God who began this good work within you will continue this work until it's finally finished. 
on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Isn't that a glorious picture? Isn't that a wonderful image that ought to give us hope as we live this earthly life, that God always finishes what he begins and he always wins? Now, I don't know what your picture of heaven is like, but I read a great quote this week and I just think this is beautiful. He says, it's strange how when we imagine heaven, we think of it somehow as being shadowy. We colour it with tints of moonlight and sleep and faces of the dead. But, he says, there are no shades there. There is the substance of joy and there is the vitality of action. That's the hope that's ours in Christ Jesus. Now, I think that's a hope that's worth claiming, not only when, when I die, but it's a hope worth claiming even as I live in this shabby, old, faulty body. That's our future home, when we know and when we love Christ. You know, as Christians, we've got so much to rejoice in, haven't we? Why is it so many of us wear frowns on our faces? I wonder if you know any Christians who, even though they know this triumphant hope, it looks like they've been baptised in lemon juice. Do you know the kinds I mean? This is good news. Our Hamans have been defeated and destroyed. God wins. God doesn't desire our lives to be a daily grind. He's, he's given us this amazing gift of joy. He's given us a, a hope of an amazing future. And that should exchange our, our tears for smiles. It should fire us in the lives that we're living. Do you know your future might have been awful? It's possible even that your present isn't that great. You may well be wrestling with cancer, with heart attacks, with death, with bankruptcy. As a country, yes, as a world, we're facing a, a cost of living crisis. There are going to be higher taxes. You might have a conflict with a friend or a family member. But in Christ, the future is glorious and it's triumphant. And all this is made possible for us because of Jesus, because he went to the cross, because he forgave our sins. And if ever you've wanted to know how much God loves you, would you please just look at the cross? Because the cross is God's way of saying, look, love wins. Jesus is confronted with every single possible kind of evil. He was beaten, he was tortured, he was stripped down to his underwear, he was spat upon. The Roman soldiers looked at him and nailed him to the cross and says, this is what happens to people who oppose Rome. Die! The Jewish authorities tried to beat him and defeat him, yet Jesus responds... And he responds by refusing to take up arms against the enemy, by refusing to call down legions of angels, and instead takes a punishment that he doesn't deserve. But the joke was on those who crucified Christ, because on the third day he rose from the grave. Not even death could stop the power of this evil that was at work. On that first Easter morning, Jesus showed us in the most tangible way he knew how to, that love wins that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Jesus, if we know him and we love him, has led us out of death. Jesus, if we know him and love him, has healed that great divide between us and God. He alone can rescue. He alone can rescue. And that's why today I proclaim this, this triumphant hope. Because there is no other hope that's worth proclaiming. There's no other saviour who's worth trusting, and I commend him to you today. As I finish, I want to finish with these words of Romans chapter 8. It says this, We know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. I wonder if you're struggling with something difficult today. God is going to work this thing for your good, even in your struggle. 
even in the struggle, remember that the future is triumphant and there's reason to hope. And Paul goes on to say that. He says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If you will be my people, I will be your God. If God is for you, who can be against you? For I'm convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, no Haman, no decrees of Xerxes, the Persian Empire, your battle with cancer, your battle with your finances, your battle with your neighbours, with your relatives, your struggle with depression, the sadness that you carry today. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's your promise. We have a God who's going to finish the good work that he's begun in you. All you simply need to do is to allow him to be your God. And Lord, this morning we recommit our lives to you. Maybe this morning for some of us, perhaps for the first time, this is your moment to make a commitment to Jesus to be your Lord and Saviour. The moment you do that, you can know that triumphant hope. Lord, thank you. Lord, whether we come to know you for the first time or we make a commitment afresh, Lord, hear our prayer this morning that we love you, (laughs) that we're trusting you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you, Jesus, that you have led us out of death, that in Christ, the great divide between us and God is healed. You've made a way where there was no way. We thank you. And even though we struggle and even though we wrestle, Lord, thank you that the future, the future is bright. We thank you. could save themselves, their own soul could heal. Our shame was deeper than the sea, your grace is deep. Let's stand, let's sing together, who, O Lord?